You guys can grab a seat once you finish those conversations. All right, well, welcome to DOXA. My name is, uh, my name is David. I'm the church planning candidate here. And so if you are new to DOXA, one of the things that we do is we want to be a church that plants churches. And so we actually are planting a church in 2022 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is super cool. Yes, thank you. That's fun. Um, so yeah, if you got a Bible, pull it out. We're in 1 Corinthians 4. And, and as you're kind of getting there, I'll, I'll just share. I got a chance to, this last Thursday, we had this thing called like network night for kind of like our different churches that are in this network. And basically, if, if you don't know what Docs is, it's part of this network called the Salt Network. And Salt Network is basically a group of like this family of churches that are saying, man, we want to kind of not just have our churches here. We want to kind of leverage what we have to see other churches planted in other university contexts. And so I actually got to go back to Ames, Iowa, to Cornerstone, the church that planted Doxa. And uh, yeah, I got to like preach there at their college ministry. And so it's just cool. If you um, don't know like about the Salt Network, come and talk to some of us about it. It is a really cool thing we get to be a part of. It's not just see God do awesome stuff here, but see kind of all throughout the Midwest, God is doing some really cool things in university cities. And we're hoping that next year he'll do the same in Ann Arbor. But anyway, 1 Corinthians 4. So if you've got a Bible, pull it out. We're, um, I don't have any like a fancy uh, intro for you. I'm just going to read the text, and we're going to jump into it this morning. This is how it starts. He's kind of continuing this conversation about the way that these, this church is kind of viewing Paul and kind of some other preachers and teachers, these apostles, and he's kind of having this conversation with them about the way they're thinking about things. It says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Now this is how you should regard us. This is how you should think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will Bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos. Remember, it's kind of these two teachers you've been talking about for a few chapters now. I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why, does you, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Okay, so this text, it's not that long. It's like seven verses, right? And so what he does is interesting. He kind of starts verses one through two, and he starts talking about himself, right? He's saying like, man, this is how you should view us, like me, these other apostles, like Paulus, other kind of preacher of the church. This is how we think of ourselves. This is how you should view us. And then at the very end, he goes, and now actually this is how I want to view, how I want you to view yourself, right? And so he says, like, this is how you should view us, this is how we should, should view yourselves. And then kind of sandwiched in between these two things, he's like, and also, this is how you should view God. And actually, God, a right view of God is going to cause you to not just view us in the right way, but view yourself in the right way. And so what I want to do is actually I want to pull this text apart, and we're going to look at, like, the first thing, the first two verses then we're going to look at the last two verses, and then we're going to kind of end looking at this kind of view of God that really is going to inform everything that he's trying to 
say. Okay, so let's start. Verses one through two. Ready? This is what it says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of God. What is he saying? Well, he's saying this. He's saying, as you think of us, and now he's, he's having this conversation, right, with them because they've kind of been viewing Paul and they're saying, Paul, like, we're, we're kind of making these comparisons between Paul and Apollos and these other teachers and they're kind of basically what they've done and, and if you've been coming to Doxa, you've heard this, you're like, this is like four chapters of the same issue and it's like, yeah, it is because there's this surface issue going on that's revealing this like really deep problem in their heart that's like a gospel issue. And so he's like continuing to talk about this. He's saying, this thing that you keep doing where you're saying like, Paul versus Apollos or Paul versus Peter, like some apostle versus the other. He's saying, the reason you shouldn't make this distinction between us and like cause these tribes to kind of form around which leader you like the best is because ultimately the way you should view us is servants. Servants of God. Actually, if you read other letters from Paul, this is how he introduces himself. Like sometimes he'll say, like, this is Paul, like a servant of Christ or like a slave of Christ. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying God is our master. He's our master. He, he is where our identity actually comes from, and he is the one we're accountable to because we are his servants. But being his servants, what that means is that the things we have, we are actually stewards of those. That's what he says next, right? Stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, whoever you are, the things that you have, God's given, he's entrusted you to those things. But for the apostles, right, like the specific thing they have is like, they're like preaching the word of God. They're like unveiling the mysteries of God, like to the early church. Like what are the doctrines of salvation? Who is Christ? What did the cross mean? And so these are like powerful things. And so he's saying, these mysteries of God that we're unveiling for you, we're actually just stewards of these things. They're not ours. They've been entrusted to us, but they are God's truth. It's his gospel, it's his story, and we are just caretakers of these things. They aren't ours. So if you're like, this person is like really good at explaining these mysteries, and this person is like kind of good at them, he's like, that is a really dumb comparison to make because ultimately they're not even our things to begin with, they're his. And moreover, it is required of students, stewards, <laughs> it is required of stewards they be found faithful. Now, I just want us to notice the way Paul views his life and how he actually expects us as kind of believers or even in this church in Corinth, how he expects them to view himself as a servant and as a steward. And that the main thing that's required of him is that he would be faithful. Now, I want us to notice it isn't required of servants that they be great. Like this is one of the things Paul's saying. He's saying faithfulness, not greatness. And the reason is because their greatness isn't actually important at all. Because it's the master who is great. What's required of them is they're just faithful to his purposes, his desires. And here's what he's saying. He's saying you're trying to compare these apostles and preachers, but you're really just comparing two different servants of one great master. And anything special about us is really something special about him. And so even our message and our gifts, they aren't ours, but they are his. And it's like, here's the way I've been like thinking about this. And it, it really is kind of funny what they're doing. And I think actually funny what we often do, even in the church, because we don't necessarily always, you know, like I don't think there's factions built up of like Rob and then Ronnie, right? Like I don't think that's like happening at Doxa. I hope not. If it is, like disband those groups immediately, okay? But we do this thing, right? Where we like look at certain people who are in the church and we go, oh, that person's great. 
That person's fantastic. Maybe they're, maybe they're wealthy. Maybe they're really articulate. Maybe they're like a powerful person in society. And we kind of look at those people and we attach some kind of greatness to them. And what Paul is saying is this is a really foolish thing to do because at the end of the day, no matter who is in this room, we are all just servants of one great master, Jesus. And so it's this interesting thing. It'd be like if you're like at a really, let's just say like, Something from a movie, like this is not my normal experience, right? But you see this in movies, like you get this like really high-end like yacht dealership or something, right? And you're like sitting in there and you're like one of the people, like you're milling around the store and then you see this like stretch limo pull up outside, pulls up and you hear the brakes. And then you look through kind of the smoky glass in the back. You can see there's someone sitting in the back of this limo. And this person's like powerful. Like this is like an A-lister. They even have like an entourage around them. And they don't get out of the car. They stay there. But the person driving the limo gets out, walks in, and just slams down a huge pile of cash. It's probably in a briefcase, right? Spins it around, opens it up. And he's like, we want the biggest and the biggest yacht you have, you know. Here's what we might be tempted to do. The dude who has the money and pushes it forward and is like, I want this. You might be tempted to be like, this person is incredible. Look at the power he has. He's walking into this place and doing this kind of amazing, powerful thing in society. People would look at it and go, this person is great. And what Paul is saying is, if you look at that person, you think that person's awesome, you're an idiot. That's the driver, right? Like, that's the dude who drives around the important person. Don't miss what's happening. Look past this person to the guy who's actually sitting in the back because that's the master. And it's his money. And it's his power that's being put on display in this moment. So he's saying, don't miss what's actually happening. And here's Paul's point. You're being distracted with which servant is better. And when you do that, you've actually taken your eyes off of the master that we all serve. And he is the one that we should all be paying attention to. So those are the first two verses. So go kind of skip to the end with me, verse six, because now he's gonna say, now this is how I want you to view yourself. So he says, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by kind of your way of viewing us to not go beyond what is written so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now this, this verse here, verse six, um, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written. So just being totally transparent with you, I've read so many different commentaries on this and no one really knows exactly what he's referring to, okay? It's like, what, what does he mean when he's saying, beyond what is written. So some people think that what he's talking about is just the Bible. Like, don't go beyond this text, right? Like, what is written, the Bible. Or some people think it just means, like, the gospel. Or some people even think it means, like, the other letters that Paul's kind of written to the Corinthians. There's kind of this correspondence between them. But whatever Paul is referring to, it has to do with how they relate to God. Right? That's clear from the context. Like, how salvation works. Because what's true about salvation, what has been revealed and written to us, about Christ is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's level. There's no peaks, there's no valleys because no one can bring anything with them to the foot of the cross. The only thing you can bring with you to Jesus at the foot of the cross is your sin. Our gifts don't matter there. 
Our heritage and our lineage are not impressive to him. Our bank accounts don't matter there. Those are actually all completely useful things in this holy, sacred place. And they don't actually give you even an inch head start in the kingdom of God. They don't put you even an inch closer to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, most of the times, those kinds of things the world looks at as really valuable and impressive, those end up being like ankle weights in your pursuit of God. Most of the time, they slow you down, don't speed you up. We all come to Jesus on the same level playing field. And so when you go beyond what is written, you begin to become puffed up against one another. And you start to differentiate people not based on who they are as they stand before the one on the cross, but you start to differentiate people based on who they are in the eyes of the world. And so in verse seven, he says it like this. He says, for who sees anything different in you? like us in this room, like there are people from every kind of different socioeconomic status. Like there are people who are powerful. There are people who no one will know your name. Like we have people from all walks of life. And he's saying, what is actually different between any one of us? And it's like a rhetorical question because he's saying there's actually nothing different because look what he says next. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What he's saying is this. He's saying the things that you have, no matter what it is, a skill set, your mind, your money, your status, your, whatever it is, he says those things don't actually belong to you. But they have been entrusted to you by your master. He's saying we're actually not our own, but actually fundamentally you should view yourself like we view ourselves. We are just servants and the things that we consider ours, they're not really ours, but we are actually just stewards of them. They've been entrusted to us and there's actually a day coming. And Jesus talks about this all the time where the master is actually going to return and he's going to settle accounts with his servants. So he says, What do you have that you did not receive, but why are you boasting about yourself and your life and those you know as though you didn't receive them, as though those are something that are just true of you, that you earned these things? And the problem is if you view the things in your life as yours and not as gifts that God has entrusted to you to use for his purposes in his world, then you will end up puffed up against one another. You can't get away from it. You will end up comparing yourself to others, either looking down on those who have less than you or looking up to those who have more than you. As though we aren't just merely stewards of someone else's things, but starting to think that we've actually earned these things or that person has earned these things or I've earned my things, that they are ours. And what's so tricky is this is not just going to change the way you view other people, right? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying this is the problem. This is the reason you're viewing us in this way and viewing yourselves in this way. This is changing the way you view other people, but it's also going to change the way you live your life. Because you will begin to actually use the master's things for your purposes and your desires and your plans because you're going to start to think that they're yours, Jesus in, in Matthew 25, it's like towards the end of Matthew, it's like one of the like later parables he gives. He says that the kingdom of heaven 
is basically like this. You could essentially explain the reality of the world like this, that there was a master who entrusted his property to a bunch of different servants. And there's a day coming where the master is going to come back and he's going to figure out and settle accounts with all of his servants of what you did with all the stuff he gave you. And in Luke, it's a similar kind of parable and he ends like this and just says, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. Why? Because it's not their stuff, it's his. And so he's saying the way you should view us as apostles, the way you should view ourselves as kind of just normal people in the church, as his servants and stewards of everything that we have. Now, is this the way that you view your things? Like, is this, is this the way we think about our time, our money, our gifts? And even that, like, phrase, right, our time, <laughs> our money. Like, even the way we say, even the way I write this question, right, it's like we think of these things as ours, our houses, our cars, our bank accounts, our food in the fridge with our name on it. We put our name on it so we know, our roommates know, this is my food, don't eat this, right? <laughs> what do we do with these things? Well, it isn't about just doing good things with the things God's given us. And it isn't actually just about living kind of this good, morally virtuous life where like if we have a lot of money, we give a lot to the poor, right? That's not actually so much what he's talking about. This is about how you relate to God, how you think of him, how you relate to him, how you view your life in relation to him. And Paul says, this is how you should view us and this is how you should view yourself, a servant. Whatever you have, that you are a steward of that thing. So do not boast about it or think it is yours because it is his. And we shouldn't be proud about these things, but we should actually be humbled by them because there is a day coming where the master will return and settle accounts with us. And he will make a judgment about whether we have been faithful with what he entrusted to us or not. So we shouldn't boast about these things. We should be humble about them because we're gonna to have to give an account for them. And he says that what is hidden in darkness, in this final day, it's gonna be brought out into the light. That actually this day with the judge, he's gonna disclose the purposes of our heart. And this is the point of everything he's saying, okay? So that was like the first part of the text, the last part, and now I wanna just zoom in and look at the, the middle because everything he's saying about himself and the church is connected with this. Verse three, he says, but with me, it's, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, right? Because they're kind of comparing Paul and they're like, Paul, I don't like, you, you have this kind of cross-shaped life. It's kind of humble and it looks kind of pathetic compared to some of these other teachers that we really like. And so he's saying, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So he's saying, I'm not judged by you. I'm not judged by any human court. Now here's where things get really interesting, right? Because if you're paying attention, most of us hear those two lines and we're like, amen, right? I'm not judged by you. I'm not judged by any kind of group of people. It doesn't matter what you think of me. 
because no one else can really see what's going on inside here. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of me. Whatever group might come at me and question the things I do with my life and my choices, that doesn't matter. Ultimately, what matters is that we are true to ourselves, true to what we think and we believe and feel. You can't judge me. Only I can really be an accurate judge of myself because only I can really know myself. Now, that idea fits really well in today's culture. That is not what he says at all. No, he actually says, no, you can't judge me, the world can't judge me, and I don't even judge myself. Now he says, like, I could, like, it's not that I, I don't do that because I think there's something nefarious going on. He's like, I, I really don't think there's like something going on. Like, I. When I do judge myself, I really think I'm trying to live a good godly life. I, I'm not trying to deceive you with this message. Like I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do this honestly. But he says, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I think of myself. It matters what God thinks of me. And so he puts his view of himself, his, his reading, his own kind of ability to judge his heart, he puts that on the exact same level as someone's ability to judge him, the world's ability to judge him, and he goes, my ability to judge me. He goes, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Why? Because it's the Lord who judges me. And so even though I don't know anything against myself, that doesn't matter because ultimately I am not my own. But I am the servant of the Lord. He's my creator and my life is his, and it isn't my view of myself or my understanding of myself that matters. I don't determine whether I have been faithful. My master does. There's this parable in Luke where Jesus is trying to explain something similar to this. It's Luke 12, and Luke 12, 16, he says this. He told him a parable talking about a man and his God. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And so he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops, right? This like massive harvest. It's awesome. And, and he isn't doing anything like, he's not stealing. He's not doing anything wrong. He's just like having this blessing. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will actually say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So he's having this conversation with himself. Like he's almost like the author of his own story, right? Like I'm going to do these things with my stuff. But God said to him, fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, Jesus, he's, he gives this parable basically to talk about like materialism and, and wealth and, and, and just like this view that we have of like living for God or living for the world. But it's also about two different voices, right? Because it didn't matter what this man thought about his life and his choices and himself, because he's thinking things about them. He's probably interrogating his own heart. What should I do with these things? How do I live my life? It actually only mattered what God thought of him. And even though this man is speaking to himself about his life and his plans and his future, none of that mattered. The only voice that actually mattered was God's. 
And so this is what he says in, in verse five. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So that's the center of what he wants to talk about. Jesus, the judge. But before we jump into like the force of what he's saying, I wanna take a minute and just explain what he's not saying. Because he says this line that's interesting, right? He says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. And I've heard some people will take that line like this, like no one should judge the lifestyle or choices of anyone else. We should leave all judgment for God. And there's kind of this idea of saying, you know, don't judge others. Don't ever call out sin in someone else's life because who are we to judge? We're not their judge. God is their judge. So all will be revealed in the end. And this is a really popular idea in culture. And I think it's even a popular idea for us sometimes, right? It's like someone comes to us and is like, hey, I see this in your life. And you're like, well, okay, stay in your lane. Like I have a judge, God, and like I'm gonna be with him. And so you don't need to come into my life and say anything to me. And I think it's a popular idea, right? Like some of us might agree with those ideas, but this is, this is not what Paul means. Because actually a couple chapters later, we're gonna get to this. He, he's gonna address a man who's living a sinful lifestyle and is also still living in the community of the church. So he's like not obeying God's commands and calling himself a Christian, living in like this community we'd have here today. And not only does Paul pronounce judgment on this man, but he actually calls out the church for not pronouncing judgment on him and just letting him kind of freely live this way while remaining in good standing in the community. So actually Christians are supposed to self-police sin in their own ranks, not heavy handed, but with grace, but we are supposed to actually call one another to live the kind of lives Jesus calls us to live. So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, we do not judge anyone or make any differentiation between right or wrong. We let God do all of that. It's not what he's saying. So what is he trying to say? What he's trying to do is he's trying to get them to take their eyes off of the world's judgment systems that they are so enamored with, right? Status, wealth, power, skill. These are the things the world uses to evaluate people. And these are the very criteria that this church in Corinth is using to evaluate Paul. And so Paul is trying to get them to take their eyes off of these worldly ways of making judgments and instead come face to face with this reality that there is a judge who they will stand face to face with someday. And he has a very different value system in the world. Uh, have you ever heard anyone use the phrase I was talking about earlier, like God is my judge? I've actually seen that like tattooed on people or I've had conversations with people about that, like talking about their life. And some people will say that. They'll say, well, hey, God is my judge. And it's sort of this interesting thing we say, right? When someone's questioning our choices, you can't judge me, God is my judge. And that is true. That's true. God is your judge. God is my judge. The only being who has never sinned who dwells in unapproachable light because of his holiness and perfection, that is your judge. And there's gonna come a day where all the voices and all the courts and all our friends or all the people that we follow on social media where everyone and everything will not just fade from view but it will vanish from sight and sound as we stand before him. And on that day, the day, 
His voice and his assessment of you will be the only voice that matters. Either his commendation of you or his rejection of you. And you will not hear the voices of your friends. You won't hear the voices of your teachers or your mentors and you will not hear your own voice either. Because you will not be there to plead your case or explain yourself or try to defend your life, but you will be there on that day to hear his voice and his assessment of you. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying God is not going to come to you to see whether you lived up to your standard or not. He's not gonna come to you to see whether you live true to yourself or not. In fact, he's not going to come to you at all, but when Jesus returns, you will come to him. And you will see whether you lived up to his standard or not. And you will see whether you lived true to him and his word and his ways or not. So when we say something like, God is my judge, we are saying something that is actually more true than we could possibly know. But it's not something that should make us proud in the face of others or cause us to stiff arm the voice of others in our lives. But it should humble us tremendously. And it should remind us that there is a day coming when the Lord will return. And he's going to bring to light all that is currently hid in darkness. Things that are hidden from everyone else's eyes. Those things will be revealed from our hearts. Things that are true of our hearts that are even hidden from us that we are even deceived about. Those things will be exposed. He's going to disclose the purposes of our hearts that we don't even see. And he says on that day then each one will receive his commendation from God. And it's so interesting what Paul is saying because he's saying that on this day, what's going to happen is that the voice of the judge is going to be the loudest and most important voice. And he says, the reason I don't even judge myself, right? Paul, as this apostle, he's like, I don't even judge myself because my judgment doesn't matter. His voice is the only one that matters. In Acts 17, 31, this is how Paul explains this. He says, he has fixed a day, God. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So who is this judge? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The one you stand before will be Jesus Christ. And he will be your judge And there is sin that is currently hidden in darkness that will be revealed on that day. But what's interesting is on that day, there is also humility and love and faithfulness to the Lord that is also hidden in darkness, right? These are the kinds of like ways of God that the world doesn't shine a spotlight on. It doesn't highlight and doesn't push forward into celebrity status. And so those things right now, this quiet ways of the cross, those things are currently hidden in darkness. And he's saying that kind of life is actually going to be spotlighted and revealed as well. That day will reveal both of these things. The one who lives according to the wisdom of the world and lives according to the world's judgments, what will be revealed in the end is that those judgments never mattered. Those voices never mattered. 
And everything that is now hidden in darkness will be brought out into the light, but it works the other way as well because for people like Paul, who've chosen to follow Jesus and have chosen to live under the foolishness of the cross, place himself under the Lord's judgment as his servant, what will be revealed in the end is that the one who is his judge has also died in his place. And the foolishness of the cross that has marked Paul's life also marks the body of the one he stands before on that day. And what will be brought into light instead of his sin and failure will be his faith and his humility and his love for Christ. But even more than this, what will be brought out of darkness and into light is Christ's love for him. That is what will be revealed on that day. Not what he has done, not what you have done, not what he has been accomplished in his life, but what will be revealed is that the judge has loved him at the cost of his own life. And the only voice in the universe that actually matters will say on that day, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, so I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In the end, whether you are a Christian or not, the judgment of others and the judgment of this world and even the judgment of yourself, it will not matter in the end, but the only voice that matters is his. And this is true for those who have faith and those who don't. This is true of you whether you acknowledge the judge or you don't. Because you see, for those of you who in the room who have not placed your faith in Christ, and when I, when I say faith, I just want to be clear what I mean. I, I don't mean an intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is who he says he is. When I'm talking about faith, I'm talking about this whole life action where you lay your life down at his feet and you choose to respond to his cross and the empty tomb by following him as your Lord and Savior with everything you have. When I'm talking about faith, I'm talking about someone who, as imperfectly as it might be, has chosen to become his servant with your life and all that you have. Faith isn't just an intellectual belief system. It's a whole life following of Christ as Lord and Savior. But for those of you who have not done that, you're not a Christian. Hear me say this, your view of yourself your judgment of yourself and your life, it doesn't matter. Because even though you may not acknowledge the judge's existence, it will still be his voice and his voice alone that matters on that day. And you may look at your whole life and you may feel as though at every single moment in your story you have been the victim. What will be drug out of your heart on that day is that you were actually the perpetrator. Because what is required of servants and stewards is that they be found faithful. And more than anything that's happened in your story, the primary reality is that there is a master and you are his servant. And if you don't lay your life down before Jesus, you will be found unfaithful to him in the end. But for those of you who have placed their faith in Jesus, 
For those of you who have come before the one hang on the tree and you've just laid down your whole life at his feet and said, Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I have my faith in you. I want to follow you. Then your voice and your judgment of yourself doesn't matter either. Because what is also true of you on that day is it is also only his voice that will matter. And you might stand before him and you might look into your heart and see so much vileness and evil that if you would speak on your behalf and judge yourself, you would condemn yourself outright. But you don't have a voice that day, only he does. And what will be revealed and brought to light that day is not only the purposes of your heart, but the purposes of his heart for you. Because what will be brought to light, ah, what will be revealed is that even while in your life in some small and maybe even pathetic way, you've tried to be his servant, right? You have tried to take his name onto your lips. That will be revealed in that day. You, tr- you tried. You, you gave it your best shot. You tried to be his servant. You took his name on your lips. But what's going to be revealed in that day is that he has lived his whole life with your name graven on his hands and your name written on his heart. And in that moment, when you stand before that judge, the one whose name you have taken on your lips, you will see him and you will hear him take his name on his lips. And he will commend you and he will praise you. If you put your faith in Jesus, that is what judgment day is gonna be like for you. It's not going to be judgment. It's going to be commendation. You see, Paul may be a fool in the eyes of the world, and he might not have the kind of life that we might look at as blessed, but he is not a fool in the eyes of God. But Paul is doing what he should do. He's living for the praise of God instead of the fleeting, fading praise of this world. Jim Elliott was a missionary who gave up his life for Jesus, and he just says it like this. He says, he is no fool to give up what he can't keep, to gain what he can't lose. And there's a day coming when the voices of those around us and the voices of the world and even our own voices will fade away, and there will only be one voice that will sound forth on that day, and it will be his What will he speak to you? Would we be the kind of people that view our lives as his servants? Would we be the kind of people who are found as faithful stewards of all he's given us? Let's pray. Jesus, I am so thankful that on that day, you are the one that I'm going to stand before, because you know me. And God, you you know all my sin and all my failure, and God, all the dark horribleness that's inside my heart, that's 
you know that because you've already nailed that to the cross. You've swallowed it up in your body. And so Jesus, for those of us in the room who put our faith in you, when we see you face to face on that day, we will be seeing our friend. And we will not be cast out of your presence, but we will be welcomed in, ushered in with joy. God, would we look forward to that day, not fear it? Would we live our lives as servants for you? And God, would we leverage everything we have in our lives to be faithful stewards so that when you come back one day, we get to just hold up our lives and say, Jesus, here's what we did with what you gave us. We know it's not perfect. We know there's still so much sin and selfishness but we tried to be faithful to you and your purposes and your ways and the things you care about in this world. Because Jesus, we want you to be pleased with us. Because we love you. In your name, amen.